we are broadcasting live from our offices here in Centurion and what a beautiful summer's day it is. Today is the 29th of October and you're joining us for our, I think it's our 25th webinar if I'm not mistaken. A warm welcome to each and every one of you and thank you so much again for joining us. Um, perhaps while everyone is settling in, just a quick reminder that all our webinars are available on three or four different platforms. I'm going to share that in the chat functionality now so that you can just copy and easily paste those links in your browser, whichever one you prefer. And this is either to listen to it or to, to watch it. So I'm just opening the Q&A one. It won't go into that one. It will actually go into the, the chat functionality. Um, Hopefully everyone can see that. I'm just pushing into there. Perfect. Perfect. So if you've been part of our regular audience over the past three or four weeks, you would know that we've been discussing everything around practice management and perhaps how to start your practice, how to set it up, the ethical marketing around your practice, and, and even what sort of things needs to be in place if you're considering selling your practice. Um, but, but today, we... we talking about something slightly different. We're talking about your human capital that's in your practice and perhaps probably one of your most important assets. And assisting us today to delve a little bit deeper into the requirements relating to, the, to your practice's human capital, I'm very I'm happy to introduce my, my very close colleague, Lindy Krier. Um, Lindy is a human resource manager for the SpaceNet Group. And Lenny has years of experience in industrial psychology. I know, you, Lenny, you've also been in the, the um, human resource field for over 13 years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and you, you're very versatile with your, with your HR knowledge. Um, but one thing I didn't know from you, and this is something that I picked up on your CV, is that you've actually got this huge passion for applied pet behavior and the therapy behind that. So maybe I need to bring my two little furry, four-legged kids to you. Man, they can be really, really naughty. But Lenny, thanks so much for joining us and thank you for making time to join us this afternoon. Thank you so much, Lonnie, and thank you for being so flattering. I don't know if I deserve all of that flattery, but thank you for it. Um, it is a tremendous honor to be invited and to be here today. And yeah, looking forward to a fun hour. And you can definitely bring your furries. I love anything that has four legs, and in some cases, unfortunately, three. So you're more than welcome to bring them. Um, I always joke and say that my, my pets are my antidote for choosing a career in human resources. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. And obviously another very familiar face joining us again today is Dion Beesch, um, not only the Director of ProfNet Medical and the SpaceNet Global Group Executive for Operations, but also a qualified physiotherapist with years of experience in private practice. Welcome back again to Dion. Thank you, Lonnie. And uh, hi, Lindy, and welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dion. Appreciate it. Guys, at the end of today's webinar, we will be joined by Karen Stretton. Now, you might remember Karen, who's a physiotherapist with Ergotherapy Solutions from way back when, one of our previous webinars. Now, she's going to be announcing the winner of our competition, um, where if your name is in the hat, you stand the chance to win a net one office chair worth 6,500 uh, 6, rand. All you had to do was to answer a very, very easy question, which was which telehealth solution recently integrated with the practice management application EasyMed? Now you had to go and put your name in the hat via the EasyMed page, 
the, the entry is on our close, but um, please join us all the way at the end of the webinar when Karen will be joining us and announcing the winner. Guys, this afternoon's webinar is again accredited for One Ethical CEU, and I would just really like to, to thank our colleague and close friend Wendy from the Ducks Academy of Healthcare for all your help and support with regards to accreditating this webinar and for all the work that you also do on these webinars, Wendy. Thank you very much. So guys, just quickly running through who is virtually joining us today. We, we are approaching close to 500 people that, that registered for today's webinar. I know we've got 17 disciplines, if I'm not mistaken. Psychologists, you're always up there. You never disappoint over 130 of you. Physios, there's over 60. OTs, over 50. Um, biokinetics, there's around 30 of you as well. Same for speech and audiologists. 15 dietitians, close to 30 registered counsellors. There's about 20 podiatrists as well as medical orthotists and prosthetists, and a handful of social workers, chiropractors, and a few other disciplines joining us today. A warm welcome to each and every one of you. Uh, I nearly forgot to introduce myself. My name, of course, being Lani Ace. I'll be your host again this afternoon, and I am a product manager with the SpaceNet Global Group. Any questions that you've got for our guest speakers this afternoon, please pop them in the chat functionality or in the Q&A functionality. We'll try and keep a close eye on them. That's why I'm also sort of scanning towards the left side onto my second screen there. <clears throat> Guys, now between the three of us, we do have a fair amount of experience. Um, and we're gonna share as much information as possible with everyone attending here today. But just do keep in mind that it's impossible for us to, to cover every single aspect of your unique practice requirements. And should you wish to rather have a face-to-face -face or a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a professional advisor with regards to your practice needs, please do so. But I think, yeah, it's five past four, we need to kick off. And Dion, since we started sort of thinking about this week's topic for the webinar, it's been in the back of my mind. You know, over the past three weeks, we've been covering everything that's needed to set up your practice, market it, sell it, etc. There's a hell of a lot that you need to think about. In all honesty, is HR that important? Really? Yes? No? Where do we go? There's just so much. Now I need to do human resource management as well. Sure. Well, Lonnie, thanks very much. I think that's the challenge always going into a practice or running a business. Um, is that uh, you may be a great clinician, but the minute you start running a practice and start employing staff, uh, you become an HR manager, finance manager, an IT manager, um, all of these other non-clinical elements that you need to take care of in running a business. Um, some people are, are, are fueled by that. It's, it's exciting for them, and, uh, and they're excited to build a business that goes around the healthcare space. But I think going into that, anybody in private practice will know that um, uh, more and more time gets spent outside of the clinical work as the practice grows. And that, I guess, is a reality of, 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 of having your own practice and having a business. Um, HR, is it important? I think absolutely. I think it's the biggest asset we have in our practice. Um, it is the face and the hands of the practice. It is um, what makes the difference, and it's the engagement with patients. So absolutely, right from a receptionist, administrator, credit controller, um, and the clinicians working with you in your practice are, are ultimately what builds your, your value in the practice. So most certainly the biggest asset and needs to be taken care of. So when you're talking about sort of human resource management, I'm just thinking of a clinical environment in a healthcare practice. Obviously, you've got your clinicians, but there's also administrators, if I can group them together. So, Lindy, is it important to, to look after both those type of people, both the clinicians and the administrators, and does the same rules apply? 
Pride, definitely. I would say it's important to take care and look after any single body that works in your organization, regardless of their specific functionality. And I think, you know, the, the reason for that is, is multiple fold. I think the moment you become an employer, you become responsible for not only your own long-term well-being, but also the financial well-being of those that work for you, um, as well as you know their, their respective um, family members, etc. But there's also legal liabilities. And if we talk about the human resources life cycle, you know, that starts right from the day that you hire the person. Do you hire them, you know, with the right expectation of the job? How do you manage them to get the most out of them? How do you manage them to get the best performance out of them? And then, of course, if we go right to the end of the life cycle where they depart in the organization, you know, if, if it's done, you know, by, by mechanisms, for instance, such as a dismissal, are you handling it correctly? And then while they're in your employee, are you taking care of all of the statutory requirements that you need to? Because if you don't do that, you know, I think you're failing as an employer, but also you're opening yourself up for liability, which, um, you know, just doesn't make business sense at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So where would you start? I mean, I know in my research, research for this webinar, there's something called the BCEA or the Basic Conditions of Employment Act. Is that something that employers need, need to be aware of? And what does that entail? So absolutely. So the basic conditions of employment act, as the name implies, is basically the basic conditions of what you need to adhere to in terms of what you are obliged to offer your employees. Mm -hmm. And that applies to all employees. Um, and, and by that means, an employee that works for you for more than 24 hours in a month um, is covered under the provisions of that act. Um, then there are certain provisions in terms of thresholds. I don't know if we want to get into it now or later on. Where, where some provisions of that act does not necessarily apply. But it's definitely important for an employer to be familiar with the basic conditions of employment act as well as other relevant legislation to know what they are in for and what they actually need to provide as employers. Um, I don't think it's good business practice to employ people if you don't understand what the basic conditions demands of you with regards to the employment of, of employees. Um, if I could maybe ask a question there, I mean, uh, being non-Labor non, um, uh, Act kind of orientated, I, I've read through the basic conditions of employment and, and the beauty of so? it, it's actually quite, but it's, it's quite a comfortable read. I mean, sometimes you look at these acts and they're quite scary, but the BCA is written in such a way that it's actually relatively easy to understand. Um, so so it's, it's actually a, a pleasant read if, if there ever is such a thing when it comes to an act. Um, but, but I mean, if I don't have a, an employment contract in place with my staff, what does that mean for the basic conditions of employment, Lindy? Is that, does that then, what is the role of that? So at the end of the day, every employee is entitled to the basic conditions as stipulated in the Act. So whether you have an employment agreement in place or not, the employee will have that as a minimum. So your employment agreement can, for instance, give an employee more, um, you know, more rights, more benefits, et cetera, than stipulated in the Act, but you can never give them less than what's stipulated. So by virtue of the fact, if you do not have employment agreement, the basic conditions of employment kind of becomes the agreement that you would have to um, keep to with regards to employees. But, you know, Dion, with that being said, I just think it's such a simple thing to actually do is to implement an employment agreement with your staff. And it just clarifies what the expectations are from both parties. Both parties know what they're in for. You know, you can stipulate certain requirements that you have from staff. So it, it just really does not make sense to not have employment agreements in place 
But with that being said, yes, if you didn't, you would still have to adhere to what the Biosafe Conditions of Employment Act says. So, Lenny, there was something that you, you mentioned about if, you, if you're employed for a certain amount of hours or over and above a certain amount of hours. Dion, would this, for example, be, may I use the term locum or a part-time worker? What's the difference? And is there anything, is there anything, is there something like an independent worker, for example? Yeah, well, that's a, that's, that's a huge topic. I think there's so many elements to that. Um, I think if I can maybe just take the angle of what does locum mean really when it comes to the whole professions uh, uh, council and, and the regulation there. Um, so, so I think firstly, the, the, the Labor Act and the basic conditions of employment applies to both clinical and non-clinical staff, I think to your question earlier, Lani. Um, but obviously the HPCSA has got uh, jurisdiction over the clinical staff. So there is a, a, a variation in those um, as far as how we do that. And for example, we, we've drafted um, employment contracts for, for PropNet members where we've got two different ones. There's one for clinical staff and one for non-clinical staff and because of the, the variation there. Um, but it is important that our clinical staff are then uh, governed by the HPCSA regulations or the allied HPCSA for those registered there or the nursing council and so on. Um, so it's important that we comply with the regulation. What does the HPCSA say about locum? It is essentially saying it's somebody that comes in and works for up to six months in a practice. And typically it's somebody who comes in to work in a practice to cover for maternity leave is typically the, the example that, that, that is, I think, close to, to many. Um, or if you're going on a sabbatical or extended leave, um, that you'd have somebody who comes in and works for up to six months. It doesn't say it's part-time, it doesn't say it's full-time, it doesn't say that you're paid in a certain way, it doesn't mean that you're on a commission base or a fixed salary or a per-patient rate or any of those, and there's ethical conversations around that too. Um, but locum purely from an HPCSA point is talking about somebody who comes in temporarily into your practice and works up to six months. Um, I think, Lindy, from a, from a labor law point of view, you may have a different angle on what that means. In HPCSA, they call that a locum. What would they call that in labor? So, in, in terms of labour, you would refer to that as a fixed-term contract of employment, which basically means it's a contract of employment, which, as the name says, is of a fixed term. So, it has a start date and an end date. And upon the end date arriving, it means that you will, you will finish up and you will leave the, the employment of that specific employer. So, that's the basic premise of that. But with that being said, I think, and, and not necessarily in any specific industry, but there is a trend for people to misuse fixed-term contract of employment, where they keep rolling contract of employment. So they employ you for three months, that period ends, the new contract gets walled out, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, there's certain concerns, especially that employers need to guard against with regards to doing that, because technically that's not the correct use for uh, a fixed-term contract of employment. Um, and, and, you know, there's also certain abilities that they potentially open themselves up for where people can claim that they, there's the expectation of permanent employment as a result of the rolling of fixed-term contract of employment. And, you know, there's a lot more of in terms of the implications that I don't think we're necessarily going to delve into right now. But, yes, in terms of a locum, in, in terms of the Labor Act, that's referred to as a fixed-term contract of employment, which then should have a finite start and an end date in terms of when the employee is engaged. Now, now, a fixed-term contract, that, that could be that I'm working only for you, right? For a full day or a half day or every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It could be any of those, right? It's just a fixed term okay. of when I'm finished, but not necessarily only with you. Um, and okay. then just a question on that, because you talked about this rolling independent contractor. Um, how does that tie in with probation? Because I think sometimes that's looked at as an alternative to probation to say, I'm going to employ you for three months fixed term. And then when the three months comes, I'm going to employ you for another three months or for a year. 
rather than having an employment contract with a three-month probation period. Um, how does that tie in? How equal or different is that to, to probation? So a fixed contract should definitely not be used as a probation. So it's not a period that you employ someone to see if they fit. Um, it is actually, you've got a bona fide reason for employing someone on a fixed term basis. You know, like the examples that you gave earlier, Dion, where someone's filling in on maternity leave or someone's gone on a sabbatical and, and for that specific reason, it's fixed term. So looking at other reasons that might be applicable for fixed term, it could also be things like it's a seasonal work or there's a specific project that you need to be engaged in that's got a finite period that it will run for. So probation and fixed term should definitely not be confused. You can have a probation clause and most people do and probably should in your permanent employment contracts and that clause is intended for you to assess the fit between the employee and the employee and more specifically to assess whether the employee has the ability to do the job that you've actually employed them to do. So those two concepts should definitely not be confused. It's not the same thing. And a fixed term contract is not there for you to test the employee and then decide if you want to commit or not commit to the employee. Lani, I want to ask one more question on that, if you don't mind. I know that, but thanks. So, so Lindy, you're talking now about probation, and that it's, let's say it's a three-month probationary period. It could be six, I guess, or whatever you set in your contract. But yep. in the probation period, does it mean that somebody can start working for me, and after three months, I can uh, call them in and say, you know what, it's been great having you with me, but, you know, you're not a cultural fit, and, you know, you didn't really fit in, and we don't really like you, and, you know, we, we've decided that we're not going to actually extend your contract, so thanks very much for, for working for us in your probation period, cheerio. Or is there mm -hmm. something that we have to follow in that time to actually get to mm -hmm. that point to say maybe this is not working? Yeah, so, so firstly, uh, it depends. It's, it's not whether you like the person or not, per se. It's whether the person can do the job, to the desired standard that you would expect as an employer or not. And unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of people are under the perception that if it's a three-month probationary period and day 90 rolls on, I can call you in and say, you know, don't come for day 91, it's over, but let's call it quits. That's really not the process that needs to be followed. So there's also an obligation on the employee in that period to evaluate the employee and to assess where the employee is meeting the bar or not meeting the bar and to have an open conversation with the employee to help the employee to get there. So you still have to, as an employer, you know, guide, assist, etc., the employee to reach the, the, the desired landmarks or the desired um, performance criteria that you would set for the employee. Um, the only difference between a performance process in probation and after probation is that after probation, you actually need to give the employee a reasonable time period to show improvement, where that is specifically what your probationary period is for. So you would still have to have a poor performance inquiry if you felt that the employee performed poorly and was not a fit for your organization. However, in certain um, circumstances, if you know, depending on what the nature of the, the circumstances are, and again, all of these things are at merit, you can actually extend the probation period. So for instance, if the probation period is three months, you are allowed to say, we need another three months to assess. Again, it's not a given, and there has to be certain conditions that actually exist for you to be, be able to justify to do that. So I don't know if that answers your question, Dion. It does, but I think the take-home message I got from what you're saying now is that if somebody's in full-time employment with me for many years and I've got a concern around their performance, I need to go through a disciplinary process or a, a, a due process to address yes. that performance, try and help them right, uh, try and set them right, give them the tools, give them the equipment, uh, assist them to try and perform their, their, their functions better if it is something the employer can actually do. Um, and if they still don't meet that bar, I need to go through the due process to actually dis, uh, dismiss them 
And it seems like in probation period, the same applies. Yep. Yes, it's just not as involved. So, so your process doesn't have to be as extensive in your probationary period as it, as it would be outside of your probationary period. So it is easier and, and there is value in having a probationary period, but it's not, it's not a quick fix. You know? And I think at the end of the day, what we also need to look at as employers is being fair. So also to give the person the fair opportunity to potentially improve, to know where the shortfalls are so that they have opportunity to correct themselves if possible. Um, you know, before just getting employees out of there. And also, you know, besides that, employment comes at a cost. Anyone that has used a recruitment agency or gone through the pain of recruitment knows that it's a costly process, not only financially, but also in terms of the hours that you spend on it. So, you know, I, I really think that it's something that employers need to approach with a yeah. due level of caution and not just assume that, you know, at, at day 90, we call it quits, if that makes sense. I think we've answered Leslie May's question there quite clearly. Yes. There, just really, it is a nightmare really to 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 move somebody out of a business when they're not meeting the performance requirements. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Leslie, I think we agree that um, you know misconduct is almost an easier one because you can actually say this person did the following, and maybe we can talk later about misconduct. But poor performance yeah. is a more difficult one to prove, and that that one has to then go through yeah. in that process. Uh, you don't have to keep extending that three months. Then Leslie's saying that three months becomes three months. How how quick is the process, or can it be, Lindy, if somebody is is not performing well, and you actually put them under performance management? So again, we need to distinguish between whether this person is still in probation in, during which you can handle it before the probation period expires. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, you could put yourself in a position where at day ninety you can really say it's not working given the fact that you followed the due process leading up to that. However, if it's subsequent to that, there's no specific time period. There's nothing that says, you know, it's X number of days. It's a reasonable period to improve. So it would depend on the nature of the work that the person does, um, you know, the, all of those kind of factors, how easy it is to assess, how objective the measures are that you have in place. So there's a variety of things that you would have to look at on merit to say what's a reasonable period to give this employee to improve in this specific environment with the specifics of what their function entails. Okay, awesome. Lindy, if you were quite happy with the, the performance of your, your employee, do you need to officially inform them that the probation period is done and dusted or is it an assumption and you just move on? So I think it's a nice practice to say, you know, congratulations, you've successfully passed your probation period. But if you were to say nothing and the probationary period lapsed, it would automatically just roll on. So there's no specific need to actually say, you know, you're not temporary and then you become permanent. You are permanent with a probationary period. So there's a little bit of a distinguishing factor there. Okay, all right. So we keep talking about the employer as well, and I'm sure the employer's got a load of responsibilities with regards to the people either he or she employs in their practice. What about things like UIF and PAYE? And I know there's something even called SDL, which you might need to unpack a little bit in more detail, because I don't think a lot of people know about that. But let's start with UIF. Mm -hmm. Especially with COVID now, that's it's a it's an abbreviation that kept popping up. Can you claim for it? How do you claim for it? Do you how can you apply for it? Who can apply for it? Maybe mm -hmm. you can just um, go into a bit more detail for us regarding that. Okay, so UIF is obviously the unemployed um, unemployment insurance fund. So what that is, it's a fund that employers as well as employees contribute to on a monthly basis that provides under certain conditions should the employee find themselves in a position where they lose their job 
or where they are unable to work. So that specific percentage is actually 1% of the employee salary, which both the employee contributes as well as the company contributes. There is a capped amount, I think it's 14,872 if I remember correctly, which means your capped contribution amount is then 1% of that for both employer and employee to pay. Um, and that becomes payable to the employee when they find themselves without a job, but it's not, it's not for resignation. So in other words, it's when they get dismissed or they become retrenched or they are too ill to earn a living or in the case of maternity leave where, you know, if they have unpaid maternity leave, if the employer doesn't provide for paid maternity leave or, you know, the, the newly introduced paternal leaves that have been added in terms of, of this year that, that, that fathers can also now claim. It also extends it to commissioning parental leave as well as adoptive leave. So in those events, and also one of those, then obviously like you correctly said, Lohani, is where, um, where someone actually lands in a position where they cannot earn an income as a result of COVID, they would then be able to claim certain percentages from the UIF fund to sustain them in, the, in those periods where they're not earning an income. So it's not earning an income at all. It's not earning, I'm, I'm earning less of an income because of something so like COVID, for example. It could apply. It could either be not earning an income at all, or for instance, let's take an example such as maternity leave where your employer might be paying a certain percentage of your salary. You can then get another percentage from UIF. Um, it won't equal 100% of your income. Mm -hmm. So the brackets that you're looking at, at is around about 30 to 58% of your income and it will be replaced. It works on sliding scales. So the higher income you earn, the less percentage it will be. And obviously if you're above the capped amount, then it's gonna be a significantly less percentage than, than the percentages we just referred to. So it can work either way. So either if you don't have any income in, at all, so in other words, I've been retrenched or I've been dismissed, or I am on maternity leave and I'm getting a portion of my income, which obviously does not total the, or, or get to the amount that the UIF would pay out. So, because you can't, you can't supplement that to more than what they would normally pay out, if that makes sense. All right. I'm not sure whether you saw the question that just popped up. If employed on a com commission base, um, are you, as the employer, also supposed to, to pay UIF? So as far as I'm aware, yes, it would work in terms of your commission. I, I'm not 100% certain of that. I don't know, Dion, you're shaking your head, perhaps you... Yeah, I've had a look at that uh, because there are cases where people pay commission. Um, firstly, the employer should not be deducting UIF for commission-based salaries. Um, and even if they do deduct that on commission-based salaries, if you then later on go and try and claim and say, but my commission on average is whatever, the UIF won't pay out. So I think that's important in structuring of salary as well, that um, there's a value to say there's a basic plus commission because the basic will then be what you pay your UIF percentages on. Um, and you can then claim that basic should you be uh, in a position to claim UIF, but not on the commission uh, element. That's, that, that's quite important. Mm. Mm. Okay. Good, Good question. Interesting. interesting, definitely. Thanks for that. Um, what about SDL? What does it stand for? What does it mean? So SDL is skills development levy, okay? So when an employer is in a position where the total payroll bill for annum is expected to reach the 500,000 Rand mark, they actually have to register in terms of SDL, which they then have to start paying. This is not deducted from the employees. So the employer pays 1% of their salary bill per month over in terms of skills development levies. 
So this is intended, you know, it, it comes actually with the Skills Development Act and the Skills Development Levies Act. So that's intended as a fund that promotes the development and learning of employees. So it is quite a burden on, on employers, I would imagine. However, there's a little bit of relief in that if the employer submits a WSP ATR, then they can actually claim back a percentage of, of their SDL on an annual basis. And that percentage is in the region of about 20%, which is a significant, significant difference. So it's really in employer's best interest to do their annual WSP and ITR reports. And just in terms of WSP ITR, so that's Workplace Skills Plan Annual Training Reports, which the employer does in which they indicate what training they wish to do with their staff for the year to come. And the ATR part is the annual training report part in which they indicate what has been done in the year that is passed. It's almost looking forward and reflecting back. Exactly. What you're planning on doing and what you did. Exactly. And this will be for a combination of both your clinically employed staff as well as your administrative staff, if I can put it up. So that would be for everyone right from, you know, the, your elementary employees in your organization right through to the top of the highest paid employee in your organization. I think that's, that's important is that that is a, the 500,000 is per annum for all your staff. So total yes. salary bill. Total. And I think, you know, if you've got clinical staff and uh, a couple of administrators, you can very easily cross that threshold. And we've actually assisted, we assist multiple practices with their payroll. Um, and uh, taking on a new practice that have been doing it before. The challenge here, Lindy, is uh, uh, as far as I know, the, the, the SARS office doesn't contact you to say, hey, by the way, you've just crossed the threshold. You should start commit, uh, uh, contributing SDL. Um, they don't give you an instruction or a welcome party or an orientation or a job description as an employer to say, welcome to the party. You are now an agent of SARS, but by law, uh, you actually step into being an agent of SARS with certain requirements. And uh, what happens if you don't meet those requirements? Mm. So, yes, absolutely, Dion. So, employers are expected to school themselves in terms of what their responsibilities are as employers, which is why it's so important to be aware of the various forms of legislation. Um, but, yes, you're absolutely correct. There is responsibility on employers to deduct certain fees in terms of PAYE, they do become an agent of SARS. And there's actually huge liabilities for employers as well as shareholders, if, yeah. if it's not appropriately handled, where, you know, those liabilities could include fines. And I think to the most extreme, it could actually include imprisonment. So really, it is, it's not something to, to be taken lightly, lightly or, um, you know, to, to oversee. It really is important for employers to pay due attention to these matters. Can I just say, I didn't know, nobody told me, so if I knew, I would have done that, but I didn't know. I mean, ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if pleading, if pleading um, ignorance is going get to you, get you free out of this one. So you could try, certainly, but it's not a risk I would recommend anyone takes. I think that's the challenge here. And, and in fact, one of the practices we, we assisted with taking them on, once you start doing your submissions, SARS can see that your salary bill is higher. And they actually went back over three years and said, you should have been paying SDL for the last three years. So here's what you should have paid. Here's the penalty and the interest that goes with that. And they were smacked with a huge bill from SARS. Yeah. So yeah. it's important that we go in eyes wide open and that we uh, adopt the responsibility that's bestowed on us for this. So. But they have to pay the SDL on top of that as well, on top of the fine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. There goes bonuses. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
but Dion, surely when you start employing people, whether it's clinical or non-clinical, there needs to be some form of an agreement or a contract in place. Can this be verbal? Does it need to be written? And is there a difference with the type of contracts? Can something be time-based or can it be payment-based? Mm. Mm. Sure. So <laughs> I'll, I'll go into the time and the payment base. Maybe Lindy can talk about verbal versus written versus BCE. Okay. Um, if I don't, if you don't mind, but um, I think from a time base and all of those, you know, regardless of whether you paid and, and I'm going to put a provisor here because I see there is a question there about can therapists work for commission. Now, there's, there's two sides to that conversation. The first one is from a business point of view, and then I'm going to talk about the ethics around that. From a business point of view, and I'm talking about any business, let's talk about outside of healthcare. You can, of course, pay somebody a commission. You can pay them a per patient or a per visit or a per day rate. You can pay them a per hour rate. Um, you can pay them a per month rate, a per week wages, whatever it might be. Those are all different payment arrangements. Um, and you could then be the time based around that is I work full-time, part-time, five-eighths, only on Saturdays, whatever it might be. Um, those are different elements to your contract to say, I'm expecting you to be at work from a Monday to a Friday, from eight until five, um, not on Saturdays and Sundays, that's the time-based, and then I will pay you a certain amount. This is a transaction. I'm buying your time, your expertise, uh, your contributions to building value in my practice and value for the patients, and I'm going to contract you, and I'm going to say, well, if you give me those time elements and commitments I've just listed, I'm going to give you a random amount for that, or, or I'm going to pay you in kind some way. Um, typically, it's, it's a monetary uh, payment. And that payment can be a fixed amount. It can be a per week, per day, per hour, per patient, um, a, a, a per, per treatment, a per bill, whatever it might be. And I'm talking outside of the healthcare space. Um, that is how that payment can be structured. The question is, what are we allowed to do in the Health Professions Council regulated space? If there's any doubt in this, the one-liner answer is you may not pay commissions. I think that's the one-liner I want to leave everyone with. And if you start looking into the HPCSA regulation around that, it is stating that it, it all leverages on the fee sharing, um, the perverse incentives, being paid a commission or a, a portion of um, a payment that uh, you weren't directly involved in generating that revenue. So that's the easy, quick, conservative answer. And if anybody's in doubt, that's what I'd recommend that you adopt. Um, however, there are some spaces around that where people do, I think, sell close to the wind. Um, and they are paying commission salaries. We know that is happening in the market and it's happening not only from employed clinical staff, but it's happening in debt collectors. It's happening in bureaus that say, you know, we'll collect your fees or do your billing for you and we charge you a percentage, oh, a percentage. of percentage mm -hmm. payment. So if this percentage is going to be challenged in the healthcare space, it is, specific, it is definitely something that will be challenged right across the entire supply chain, not just in the employment in, yeah, area. So... If anybody is doing it, I'd recommend you refer to point one, um, that you shouldn't. Um, but most certainly, if you hold accountable, one of the, some of the key things that HPCSA is specifically concerned about when you're paying somebody commission is that you perversely incentivize for certain behavior. So let's be realistic about this. If I'm working for a practice and I'm incentivized through my payment of a percentage, say 40%, I get 40% of the bill, surely I'll be perversely motivated and incentivized to actually bill a higher fee because 40% of 200 rands is a lot more than 40% of 100 rands. So I'm perversely incentivized to charge more, to overbill. 
on the other hand, I'm also perversely incentivized to see 20 patients in a day rather than perhaps 12 that I can possibly manage. Um, and the only way to get them in is to actually under-service a patient and actually cut the services short, both for the full treatment session, but cut short because I'm perversely incentivized because of the per percentage. So, so I think it's important that we always check whether it's under this or anything else that we're making sure as practice owners that our staff and ourselves are not overbilling and under-servicing. Um, um, so, so that's important that we check both of those or even over-servicing, you know, providing services that are not required by the patient. Patient comes in, they could actually just go, it's not going to work, but I'm incentivized to treat them because, you know, 40% of zero is zero and that's not very pleasant. Mm -hmm. So, we must be realistic about those perverse incentives that are being introduced in spaces like this. I don't think that a salary takes away that perverse incentive. Let's be honest. I mean, if I'm being paid a salary, I might be incentivized to under-service. Mm. Send the patient down because, you know, I really don't have to invest. I'm going to get my money whether I treat you now for half an hour or for 10 minutes. So, um, you know, there's, there's, there's incentives both ways. So we just as employers need to be very wide awake and open to uh, what behavior we're encouraging or incentivizing through our payment structures. And maybe the difference between just having a verbal contract and an actual written signed contract in place? So there's nothing in terms of the legislation that says you have to have a contract in place, okay? There are certain stipulations that you have to give employee in writing, things like the address where they'll work, um, the remuneration that they'll be paid, what basis they'll be paid, such as what Dion has just said. But the fact is, if you don't have a contract in place, or if it's verbal, it leaves the door wide open for dispute, where someone can dispute what the verbal agreement was at any point in time, or could you know, take you to the CTMA and make wild accusations and claims, which potentially you're going to be in less of a position to disprove if you don't have a contract versus if you do have a contract for employment in place. So really, honestly, it's such a simple thing. I have to emphasize it again. It's such a simple thing to have in place. And it does protect both parties. So I, I really don't think there's a justifiable reason not to have contracts of employment in place. So one of the things that definitely needs to be in a contract is a, a topic called leave. And there's, there's numerous different types of leave. I mean, you've mentioned maternity leave. You've mentioned paternal leave. There's mm -hmm. annual leave. There's, you know, family leave, that sort of thing. Uh, have I covered all the topics there? Are there, are there more? <laughs> yeah, so, so I think you didn't mention sick leave. So I think sick leave is something else just in terms of speaking about leave and also looking at where we are now in terms of the paternal leave. But there's a lot more than just leave that needs to be covered in a contract of employment. Of you know, you could put certain things that you would normally have in policies, you could already put in the contract of employment. So the employee cannot claim that they were unaware of certain conditions or certain requirements of them. You know, if we look at people that earn above the threshold, which is above 205,000 around there per annum, which, which accumulates about, or comes to about 17,000 per month. Those employees don't necessarily qualify for overtime pay. Um, you know, so stipulations such as that can also be drafted in an employment agreement. Again, remembering you can never take away what the basic conditions of employment gives, but you can add to that. So there's a, there's a lot of things that you can cover in employment, in employment agreements that can just set your relationship with your employer up for, for a better um, chance of success and understanding going forward into the relationship. I don't know if that answered your question, Lonnie. No, I think so. And I think obviously there's a lot of information that goes into a contract and we just don't have the time to unpack every single piece of detail here this afternoon. But if I'm thinking in terms of a contract as a piece of paper between an employer and employee, 
perhaps another piece of paper is policies that mm. needs to be in your practice. It, is it a good mm -hmm. thing to have policies in your practice? What about any procedure, procedural documents? Is, is, is it even a need? So, you know, again, there's nothing in the act that says you have to have any single policy in place in organization. But it is prudent to have it in place because I think, again, it clarifies a lot of gray areas. Yeah. And it also leads to consistency in treatment and procedures, etc. So I think it just helps to have it in place. Um, so, for instance, such as, you know, leave. So maternity leave as per the act is unpaid. But if I choose to pay one employee, how do I justify not paying the other employee because I just don't like that employee that much? Mm -hmm. You know, so things like that just, just open you up to disputes and unhappiness. So it's better to have a policy in place where you know you've got consistent treatment in terms of a, no a number of things, not only leave, not only maternity leave, things like a disciplinary code because, you know, disciplinary offences might be rated as more severe in one company versus another company as a, nature, as a result of the nature of the specific entity. So, you know, that's also something that I think is important, a disciplinary code. Um, if you want to provide additional benefits to staff, such as study leave, medical aid contributions, how, do, how are you going to determine that? Is it a blanket approach? certain employees qualify or others not qualify so it really just again creates structure around ensuring consistency within an organization or, or a small business for for all parties for the employer as and as well as the employee and then if you know if we talk about things like confidentiality policies where you know in in the medical industry there's malpractice we we all painfully aware of poppy and the requirements around poppy where you can put policies in place, place to show that you have major employees aware of what their duties are around ensuring that infringements do not occur around those specific legislations which could have ramifications for the employer. Oh, there's a whole list of them. And Dion, I think you specifically mentioned during one of our previous webinars, policies and procedures might not be necessary, but boy, does it add value to your practice. Am I right? Yeah. I think, again, there's one thing to say what I need right now to be compliant and to keep my butt out of jail. I think it's often we, we say compliance and how do I earn money? Those are the two that are often uh, the drivers behind uh, uh, what we have structures we put in place. Um, but it's very important that we make decisions that add value to the business and add value to the patients. Um, and, and, and you're going to uh, really be pleased with those processes when you come to a point that you want to sell. I, as a buyer, if Lindy, if I was buying your practice and I came in and you had all your ducks in a row from an HR point of view, um, and I see you asking a, a certain amount for your practice, but I go, how do you justify that kind of value? And you go, well, here's my five years of financial audited results. Here's my standard operating procedures. Here's my policies and procedures. Here's all my employment contracts. Here's my leave, my lease agreement. You know, all of these add value because there's, there's structure into the business. The mm -hmm. staff know where they stand, what the expectations are. And you're going to see that in the bottom line as well. It really does have an effect on the revenue and the satisfaction of patients um, in the services that they receive. But I'd like to add another policy here that uh, we always did in our practice, and it really is important, is that healthcare practitioners, we must know that we obviously are responsible to abide by the ethical regulations um, and that we also have uh, malpractice insurance for, in place for, for any acts of negligence um, that may occur in the practice. Mm. Now, one of those, Linda, you touched on the Poppy Act. Patient information is, is sensitive, and it's important that we protect that. The HPCSA has for a long time, they've in fact got a booklet 
and that's uh, entitled Confidentiality, Protecting and Providing Information. And I really encourage everyone to go and have a look at that booklet and read it. Um, what we did, in fact, was all staff, both clinical and non-clinical, and uh, very often, including the non-clinical, is, 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 is of utmost importance. Uh, we'd give that booklet to them, print it out, and say, read this. You've got a couple of days to read it, the weekend, come back. We're going to sit down, and if you've got any questions, let's discuss the booklet. But I'm going to need you to sign a declaration to say you've read it and you understand it. Because I, as a healthcare practitioner, must also ensure that my staff comply with that regulation because if one of my staff breaches a patient's information there can still be a suit against me as a clinician and my malpractice insurance would kick in at that point should I have done all the right processes and um, you know it's as simple as somebody answering the phone in a reception area and saying uh, hi Mrs. Kruger great to hear from you again how is it going with your and you mentioning that condition out loud and the rest of the reception area can hear that that's a that's a that's a breach of my personal information or the one that we like to do, we go home and you go to your spouse and you go, you can't believe you came into the practice today, this famous person, and oh, you should have seen that toe. It was something horrific. You, you, you're breaching the patient's uh, confidential information. Um, so it's important that we, we bring our, our non-clinical staff on board with that too and make sure that those standard operating procedures and policies are in place. That was the one thing I wanted to talk about, but there was something else you said just about leave, Lani, if I can quickly just touch on that. Um, and and, and it does tie into that commission question, which I think we've made. If anybody catches on now, please go back and listen to that section. It's very important. But when it comes to commission, if you are paying somebody, regardless of how you're paying them, um, it is important that um, where there's an employment relationship, the basic conditions of employment apply. And Linda, you can maybe tell us what those general tests are to, to whether there is an employment relationship or not. But where there is one, it's quite easy to determine that, and, it's, and very often you are in an employment rate relationship if you, if you are in doubt. But you are then in, uh, uh, entitled to paid annual leave, 15 days uh, of paid days, uh, paid sick leave, and paid family responsibility leave. And so those who are working on other payment structures, just because I'm being paid a 40% of whatever, uh, in December I don't see any patients, so 40% of zero is zero. Um, the news for the employers is that is in contravention of the Labor Act. Um, and the, 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 the employee is entitled, where there's an employment relationship, to be paid uh, during that time. So I'm glad you're frowning, Lonnie, because I think many of our oh. listeners are. Mm. Too. <laughs> mm. yeah. Yeah. Goodness me. Guys, I'm watching the clock here, and I want to discuss one more thing, because there's a lot of information that was shared this afternoon, and I'm not sure which of you are going to pick up on this one. Surely there needs to be like a common sense check that you can just go through to see, do I have in place what I need to have in place? Is it, it's got a name, a, do, a dominant something, something? One, yeah. Impression <laughs> test, yeah? Have you got that That's there? That's the one. Yeah, so, so the dominant impression test is actually the test to assess whether someone is an employee and whether they meet the, the mark of being an employee. Is that what you're referring to, Lonnie? Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay. So in terms of that, if any one of the following um, conditions are present, so employee is deemed to be an employee in, or a, a person is deemed to be employee in the eyes of the law. Those are the employee, the person works for more than 40 hours per month on average. Um, the, the person is told how they need to do their job. So in other words, you don't hire them like you would a contractor and say, I need the lights to work, how you get them to work is your business. You actually tell them how you want them to do it. You tell them what hours they need to do it in. So you need to be up from eight to two or whatever. 
Um, that person is economically dependent on you. You provide them with the tools of the trade, whatever that might be. So it could be a laptop or you know medical equipment if, if it's a if it's a medical person that you're hiring in. Um, and they provide work to you only, so they don't have a number of people that they do work for. You are the sole source of their employment, and they are viewed as part of your organization, so not as an external person that comes in and out, but really they're an integral part of your organization. So if any one of those conditions is present, in accordance yeah. with law, that means that that person, in all likelihood, um, is an employee and needs to qualify for everything we've just discussed in terms of the benefits, in terms of the basic conditions. You need to pay UIF for them. You need to deduct PAYE for them. They would be included in your wage bill, which would make up your 1% of your SDL. And also in terms of assessments around things like COIDA, which I know we didn't really have opportunity to touch mm -hmm. on. Yeah. So, so that's basically that in a nutshell. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I am just watching the clock there and I know the attendees are burning to find out who has won the, the, the ergonomical chain. Karen, I see you joined us as well. But Dion Lindy, there is a magnitude of things that you need to consider with regards to your human resources and the, the management of the people employed by your practice and by yourself. And I think it's super important to focus on this just to make sure that you don't end up wearing an orange jumpsuit one day. So you need to stay out of prison if you start thinking of not doing these things. Um, perhaps just one last thought from, your from you both before I, before I hand over to, to Karen to announce the winner of the chair. Dion, let's, let's start with you today. Yeah, thanks. Um, I, we could spend a lot more time on this and there's a lot of conversation. I oh. think there's elements around restraint of trade. Um, there's elements about how we contract, uh, for how long, how we manage uh, staff. Uh, I would just encourage you again that, yes, while we need to understand all of this, is that if you have a large staff complement, get the right people involved to actually manage those. We often play out of our lane, and I don't think um, uh, any patient would be comfortable if Lindy, as an HR manager, comes in and says, I hear you've got a back pain, I'm going to quickly treat that. Um, we, would, we would sit back and say, but she's not really qualified to do that. But we are very often uh, try and step into an HR space as healthcare practitioners and say, well, we'll handle this. So get somebody to assist you, do your payroll correctly, get the right uh, uh, systems or software in place and the right people in place, because you're ultimately responsible not only for that staff member, um, but also for their families that depend on that revenue and the responsibilities you so, so that's what i'd encourage but uh, yeah that's all thanks dion lindy yeah so from my point of view you know i just think that employers can't afford not to have the basics in place um and and like dion said you know you don't have to be an expert you can you can hire in the knowledge that you need but there really is no excuse to say I didn't know and therefore it's not in place. Um, and I think employers have not only a legal obligation, but also an ethical obligation towards the employees that they need to be cognizant of. Mm -hmm. Don't claim ignorance. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Lindy. Thank you, Dion. Stay on the line with us, please. Thank you so much. But attendees, now the moment that you've all been waiting for. First of all, Karen, welcome back. Karen, obviously being a physiotherapist with the Ergotherapy Solutions. And um, Karen's going to announce the lucky pers person of our competition. Now, we've had over 300 people who entered the competition. They had to answer one quick and easy question. Which telehealth solution re recently integrated with the practice management application called EasyBit? <coughs> And the answer to that, of course, being Karen Medici. Karen, I think you, your sound's not working. 
Yes, that's a bit better, definitely. And you rightly said, Medici, that's it. So Karen, first of all, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We really appreciate this incredible prop prize, but I'm gonna hand it over to you for, for a few minutes. Great, thank you. Thank you, Lani, and thank you, team. It's always good to be part of the Easy Med Solutions webinars. I know today you've touched on a few topics and one of them would have been performance within one's practice or within one's business. And it's quite uh, remarkable that often I will walk into a practitioner's office and the sort of front of house is sitting in a chair that looks like it's dated back to the 1600s. Um, and there, as practitioners, we're trying to advise our patients on wellness and on getting the best out of their body and the best out of just daily tasks. So from our side, we really see the need to at least yourself as practitioners and your front of house, your staff and your accounts to just get the best out of their performance work-wise, making sure they're comfortable at work. And that's what Ergotherapy Solutions is all about. Um, we provide solutions for office setups, for home setups, especially now in, in the COVID times where people are working at home. Mm -hmm. And we provide many ergonomic uh, accessories, not just chairs, but standing desks and other solutions. We work closely with the practices. So if you have questions, please go onto our website, give us a shout, and we can guide you with regards to your staff requirements or your patient requirements. Today, I am going to announce the winner of our very great Net One Highback Chair. I do call it the Ferrari of all chairs because it just has such great adjustability. And the winner of that chair is occupational therapist, Jennifer Breton. Well done. Well done. Well no Congratulations. <laughs> that is truly fantastic. Karen, thank you so, so much. And thanks to Gary Aronson and the rest of the Ergotherapy Solutions team. I'm sure Jennifer will have many happy hours in that beautiful chair. Dion, I think you're actually currently sitting on one, if I'm not mistaken. I am, right behind me. Um, <laughs> and, and this wasn't a plug, but that is my standing desk as well. I'm really chuffed yeah. with it. And absolutely love it. It makes a difference. So I stand probably six hours of the day. I've got a bit of a wobbly stool as well to lean against. Um, but it really does make a difference. So thanks to you guys, Karen. It makes a difference. And Karen, like you rightly said, we need to, I think as healthcare practitioners, you need to practice what you preach. And from your receptionist, the chairs that you sit in, in the reception area, to the, the chairs, the desks, and everything that you use in your practice needs to be ergonomically designed and of benefit to, to both the people working there, that you as an employer, employee, and to the patients and clients that visit your practice. Is that correct? Definitely. Excellent. Well, thank you again. We really appreciate that. We do have one or two minutes left, but I'm going to start wrapping up as we've got an interesting topic coming up next week. We're taking a slightly different direction here, and we're going to talk to a allied healthcare practitioner and also the founder and MD of the advisory group, Dr. Brad Byra. And Dion's also going to be joining us again. And we're going to take an overview of malpractice insurance and medical malpractice insurance specifically. Do you need it? What does it need to look like? What does it actually cover you for in practice? Um, Brad might even be able to share some of his insights with regards to specific real life claims and what you as a healthcare provider just need to be aware of. Dion, perhaps you've got one or two thoughts that you want to add onto that because I know you touched on malpractice insurance earlier during today's webinar. 
Sure. Thanks, Lonnie. Uh, firstly, thanks, Karen, again. We really do appreciate that and, you, and your contributions. And I'm so pleased that, uh, and it wasn't Rick, but that uh, uh, Jennifer Bruton is the winner. She's a, a longstanding client of Profnet and an EasyMed and Medici user. So uh, I think it's compliments of practice. Thanks so much for that. Um, then uh, I think as far as the malpractice insurance goes, I think it's very important that people understand. And uh, we're probably finding many, many of the, the listeners have... Um, uh, obviously uh, have medical malpractice in place and have done so through and with their associations or societies. You may have found that there's been quite a lot of changes as far as how that's been managed, most certainly going into the end of this year in preparation for next year. Um, you will see changes in that space. Um, that's due to regulatory changes and, and requirements. Um, we've been foremost in responding to those changes and, and providing the solution in a, in a succinct way. So I think it's really important to, when it comes to medical malpractice, that we learn from others' mistakes and that we learn from other uh, cases where um, that often brings it home um, and we want to learn from those. So we'll be sharing some of those examples and just going through the structures. It can be quite complicated. Um, have you got claims made or occurrence-based uh, cover? What does that mean? Uh, what should I be looking for? Um, or what cover should I, should I be looking for for myself and for my non-clinical staff? Have I got that in place? Um, so there's, there's a myriad of questions, in fact, so many that uh, I think what we'll be doing is making it a two-part series. So we'll start next week with Brad, just looking at the broader scope, um, general frameworks we're working in, um, and keep it quite simple and high level. Uh, and then the second part to that series, the week after, we'll go into a bit more detail and maybe spell out a couple of solutions that we found in the market for people to consider. So uh, that's how we want to sort of phase those two conversations. Um, but very important to have that in place and to make sure that you, you, you're covered for a rainy day should it, should it happen. So um, we look forward to that one. Absolutely. Karen, are you covered? <laughs> Say that again. I'm most certainly covered. <laughs> well done. Well done. <laughs> well, listen, please make, make sure that you've got a spot during next week's webinar. I think it's the 5th of November, if I'm not mistaken. You can just log on to our website and register there. It's easymet.solutions. As you can all see on your screen, you should also receive an email or an SMS invitation within the next few days. We look forward to seeing you all there. Dion, Lindy, thank you so much for your time and sharing some of your knowledge with us. Lindy, hopefully you'll do this again with us. It's not so scary, hey? It's not so scary. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Excellent. Dion, thanks again for your time. Big pleasure. And uh, there were some questions just there about the reference of the booklet. Please go to the HPCSA website. Um, you should find it there. You might have to use their search functionality. It's a little bit of a, a trick to navigate. Uh, but it is booklet in on the HPCSA's website. Go and have a look there. Excellent. And Karen, thank you again. Thanks so much for this wonderful prize. Jennifer, congratulations again. Thank you for entering the competition to all 300 plus of you. Um, we hope to hear from you all soon again. And it's goodbye from me, folks. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you all next week. Same time, same place. Bye-bye.